Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. If you want to have fun, come home with me. You can stay all night and play with my TV. TV is the thing this year, this year. TV is the thing this year. Radio was great. Now it's out of date. I actually would enjoy listening to that entire song, but we have a lot of ground we need to cover today because, yes, we are talking about the January 6th um, attack on the Capitol committee hearings as television today. Um, Actually, I don't know if it's official yet, but I believe future episodes of the January 6th committee are being released under the title Only Riots in the Building. Uh, But it's kind of like that. I was rereading this morning, just to kind of get in the mood, a little bit of Neil Postman's classic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And one of the things that he talks about, that he's worried about, is the packaging of news as entertainment. But implicitly, that packaging in Postman's era, and really for most of the time that it could even be discussed, was done by the networks, right? But done by the people who present news. So it's done by CBS, it's done by CNN. What's happened with January 6th is that the committee itself has decided to package the news, uh, and they've done a very good job of it. Uh, and one of the later in the show, we're going to talk to Frank Rich, who knows what it's like to kind of straddle both of these worlds, the world of actual news and the world of prestige television. Uh, but right now we're going to talk, about, talk to somebody who's kind of followed admirably in uh, Neil Postman's steps. That would be James Ponowazek, the chief television critic for The New York Times, the author of Audience of One, Donald Trump Television, and The Fracturing of America. So uh, welcome back to our show, sir. Up, oh, James, are you there? Uh, yeah, there I hear you. Are. There you are. So um, so let's talk a little bit about this. The the. They, the committee has made no bones about the fact that they are, you know, they're doing this intentionally, right? They're trying to create a pretty compelling piece of television, keeping it often to, you know, under three hours, uh, sometimes close to just two hours, which is very unusual for congressional fact-finding committees. Uh, and they've even hired somebody from television to help them do it. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, so, so uh, the committee's hired uh, the former president of ABC News and a very experienced news producer to to sort of help package and give structure to this this story that they're trying to tell. Uh, you know, <clears throat> unlike you know, say the impeachment hearings that we saw during and after Trump's presidency, a lot of past congressional hearings, uh, it's not just taking the format of you know one person taking questions at a podium after another while various Congress people ask questions and or, you know, monologue. Um, There are video packages. There are sort of, you know, shifts in time and perspective. And it's also a production that's very conscious of sort of giving the viewer a map in the same way that you know, a, a streaming TV series makes sure that you know where you've gone 
in the story and where you're going to be going. Uh, the, you know, the, the laying out today, we're going to be talking about this. We're going to, you know, there's going to be a, a, a session on this aspect of it and that aspect and that aspect really like the episodic structure of, I mean, I said this the first time I wrote about it, but I, I, I honestly think one of the things this reminds me most of is the, the structure of basically a, a true crime docudrama uh, more than just a rambling, you know, public forum. Right. Sometimes you speak of maps, sometimes even literal maps. The uh, Cassidy Hutchinson episode begins with a yeah. map uh, of the West Wing to show where she sits. It's almost like the Game of Thrones title sequence. But another thing that they're doing that you don't really see a lot, and they're not doing it too brazenly, but they're kind of promoting what they're about to do. And and sometimes it's in the form of never-before-seen footage, which was uh, one of the things that was promised in that original primetime hearing that attracted 20 million people. Uh, Kat, let's hear 01. Let's hear a little bit of what that sounded like. Proudy your boy! Proudy your boy! your boy! Yeah, just for awareness, be advised, there's probably about 300 uh, Proud Boys, they're marching eastbound in this uh, 400 block of um, kind of independence actually on the mall towards the United States Capitol. I am not allowed to say what's going to happen today because everyone's just going to have to watch for themselves. But it's going to happen. Something's going to happen. Who streets? Our streets! Who streets? Our streets! Who streets? Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a, a sad day for our country. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Cruiser 50, it does look like we're going to have an ad hoc march stepping off here. There's a crowd surge heading east. So, I mean, James, one of the things that makes this different uh, from the past, it's almost as if the Watergate burglars had had GoPro cameras. You know, I mean, we're, we're living in an age where almost everybody's kind of wired for a video, whether it's yeah. police body cams, GoPros, or just holding up your smartphone. This has created a lot of montageable, if that's a word, footage. Uh, montageable, and yes, I mean, one aspect of things like this today is that you know, there's just so much that you can actually see that you would not have seen in the past. And also, and I think they were very smart about packaging this aspect of, of you know, the sort of opening montages, uh, you're seeing it from, you know, a first person point of view. Uh, the, the, the way that they shot that, or the shot, uh, edited uh, the, the, that opening January 6th reel of footage, in many times, it was almost like you were the object of the attack. You know, you were, you know, you're, you're not you're not just there. It's like it's coming at you because obviously, you know, that that is the vantage point of, say, uh, you know, a, a police body cam uh, or whatever. So, you know, they're they, they are very much taking advantage of the fact that we can see so much more than we used to. But of course, you know, and of course I should add, there is a certain element of, you know, the the day of the attack, we saw a certain amount of this. In the days after we saw a lot of this footage and it was shocking at the time, uh, you know, and so forth. But 
you know, this is this has been packaged and edited into an, an understandable narrative, you know, and put in a larger con- uh, context uh, in, in a way that kind of tells a larger story to the audience that, you know, the first time that you watched it, if you watched it live on January 6th, it seemed just more like unstructured chaos. Um, and it, as you mentioned, and I think this is really savvy on a number of levels, uh, there was this focus and almost like pitchmanship for we're going to have never before seen footage of such and such. You know, I think this the, this committee, the people who are putting this show on are very conscious, number one, not just of what gets audiences to watch and people to tune in, stay tuned in, but really what gives uh, what gets the media to pay attention. I think one thing that we've seen you know, in a lot of news stories, but particularly with things around Trump, is that the media tends to play a story bigger if it is presented as a dramatic new revelation rather than a thing that might be very shocking but done openly. You, you know this phenomenon. Like, if Trump goes up before a podium and says, you know, I am going to overturn the election, it might be this this shocking thing, you know, but, you know, he's said this out in public, and so the press often has a hard time treating it as as news. Whereas, you know, I, I just think it, it, it was very intentional that you heard this phrase, never before seen, never before seen in a lot of the advanced interviews about this, which if you were watching the coverage of it in cable news and so forth, you saw that repeated in the the coverage a lot. And, and, and that clearly affects the amount of amplification that this gets. Right. And so another thing that we're very familiar with from pitchmanship uh, is that notion of the surprise twist, the surprise yeah. something, the, so the unexpected thing that's about to happen. And of course, that happened again uh, in a subsequent hearing uh, with the appearance of, of uh, previously, you know, unknown to most of us, possible witness. Kat, we're going to skip over two and go to 03 here. Uh, here's what Cassidy Hutchinson sounded like on that day. I saw Mr. Cipollone right before I walked out onto West Exec that morning. And Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. Let's hear uh, about some of those concerns uh, that you mentioned earlier uh, in one of your interviews with us. Pat was concerned it would look like we were obstructing justice or obstructing the electoral college count. And I I apologize for probably not being um, (laughs) very firm with my legal terms here. But um, he was also worried that it would look like we were inciting a riot or encouraging a riot to erupt on the Capitol, at the Capitol. So, James, you also wrote, there's a risk with something like this. If you mention that you are suddenly scheduling an unexpected hearing because of new stuff that has come to light uh, and, and there's going to be somebody new testifying and you don't say who it's going to be. Uh, and we're all thinking, is it Ginny Thomas? Is it Ginny Thomas? I mean, yeah. it could be that you could raise the expectation bar too high. I absolutely. And this is the case with so many things in the media. You know, you say, uh, you know, there's going to be this new invention revealed and it's going to change the world. And it turns out to be the segue, you know, uh, so, so so this, you know, this may not have been 
as dramatic an appearance as some of the, you know, excited 24 hours of speculation beforehand in terms of bold-faced names. You know, it wasn't Mike Pence. It wasn't Ginny Thomas, but it was somebody who, and again, this is where those, those diagrams of the White House that you mentioned, you know, uh, 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 played in, was, was physically, you know, right at the heart of the action in the White House on the day of January 6th and in the days leading up to it, who just had gobsmacking story after anecdote to tell one after another, you know, and, and honestly, often the most sort of, you know, a, a, a visually evocative or a, a kind of water cooler worthy stories, you know, the, the ketchup dripping down the wall after Trump got mad and threw a plate or, or, or Trump, you know, lunging at the driver of the presidential vehicle. Uh, we're, we're not necessarily the most in, incriminating, you know, inter, uh, compared to say the larger narrative that she also advanced that Donald Trump knew and had been told that these protesters were armed and he wanted to lead them to the Capitol. Um, but again, it's that water cooler worthy stuff that gets people talking that, you know, kind of amplifies attention and gets things repeated. And that is what causes that more sort of, you know, damning overall narrative uh, to, 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 to start to stick. Right. And I loved a point that you made, too, which is, um, you know, we first of all, we we like stories where we can recognize the elements and the characters and the, the archetypes and the stock characters. And there's a way in which Cassidy Hutchinson is that sort of put yeah. upon underling a little bit of Tony Hale in Veep, maybe a little bit of Radar and MASH or pick pick your favorite put upon underling. The person who completes the sentences of distracted uh, bosses and stuff like that. She she's very recognizable uh, kind of the minute she starts talking. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the person who, you know, has a lot of responsibility, but maybe is not totally taken seriously, um, you know, but nonetheless, you know, has, has seen a lot of, you know, what, what, you know, what dirt has transpired and, and, and where the bodies are buried, uh, you know, and, and who as a result is privy to a lot of the offhand statements and confidences uh, that maybe a lot of other people who were not willing to come before the committee, uh, you know, might have heard or, or, or know about, but but weren't going to share, you know, and, and again, that's also, you know, people are, you know, people react to everything in political life on a polarized basis. But just sort of as a character type, that's really sort of a more sympathetic figure than a very powerful politician or advisor, right? Because you are seeing this person who is in a position of, you know, somebody who is relatively powerless and coming in and giving this explosive testimony. Uh, and that's, you know, whether it is, uh, you know, a, a courtroom drama on TV or an actual drama in Congress, uh, that that's, you know, that's that, that's the type of character that people have been 
condition to pay attention to. Absolutely. We're going to grab a break here, but as we do, I just want to point out that one of the other byproducts of this is it kind of stirs up other stories. So the Times and its coverage, I don't think this was a Ponawazic, uh, in a Ponawazic piece, pointed out as we were talking about the ketchup dripping down the wall and all the other and the, maybe the stuff that went on in the SUV, you know, that there's sort of like Trump's erratic, difficult to soothe qualities that had already been well documented. And it was pointed out that in Stephanie Grisham's tell-all book about being his spokesperson, uh, his chief press officer, although she never gave any briefings, um, that she described his temper as being so bad that there was somebody called the Music Man who was a White House aide who would follow him around or, or could be summoned. He was nearby and could be summoned when Trump was going nuts to play some songs that he finds, uh, found soothing. So we are going to go out of this segment with one of the songs that, according to Stephanie Grisham, was played to President Trump in order to calm him down. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Well, we're talking to James Ponowazic, the chief television critic for The New York Times and the author of Audience of One, Donald Trump, Television and the Fracturing of America, a terrific book. We did a show with James at the time of its release. Um, so, you know, in the time that we have left, I wanted to talk to you about this in a kind of maybe a little bit more general way. Maybe this is sort of even a, a future Ponowazic piece in the sense that Yes, this committee has done something kind of radical and just the way that they've so effectively packaged this up. But there's also a way in which the blurring but I mean, it used to be they used to say, I think, that Washington, D.C. was Hollywood for ugly people. But now Washington, D.C. and Hollywood are just sort of yin and yang. And and I think you could say that, you know, like in 1992, Murphy Brown had her baby shower and it was attended by Katie Couric and Mary Alice Williams and Paula Zahn and Joan Lennon, actual news anchors uh, playing themselves at the at the baby shower of a fictional news anchor. By 1999, you had D.D. Myers from the Clinton White House, uh, one of the people working as a writer and consultant on the West Wing. Um, by, by 2013, when guys like John, John Lovett and John Favreau left the Obama White House, they literally went straight to Hollywood to start pitching yep. stuff. You know, there's a way in which now this, this pipeline is, is unblocked. It just seems like there's this kind of sloshing back and forth between the world of D.C. where supposedly real things happen and Hollywood where they don't. 
Uh, yeah, Cal Penn was in the Obama White House. Um, you know, I just I, I think that, uh, you know, obviously everybody likes to see themselves as the star of their own movies. And so the idea of, you know, sort of Hollywoodizing politics is going to have some appeal uh, to the politicians. But I also just think, you know, we've lived in a media culture long enough that if you're paying any attention, you know, you understand that story and image and, you know, all, all, all this sort of stuff is it's not just, you know, kind of a, a distraction from politics, but it's a tool of politics. You know, Donald Trump, the star of The Apprentice, used the image that he cultivated on The Apprentice and many of the techniques in it to run for president and 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 as president. You know, Ronald Reagan was president. Uh, you know, so I think that I, I think that there there was you know there's been a for a while there's been a concept that that there's a similar skill set in political and. Hollywood communication, but maybe people are a little less, uh, you know, embarrassed about it now uh, and, and, you know, more, more willing to embrace that overlap. And, and, you know, and of course it doesn't hurt that you know, we often just live in a political reality now that, you know, could be like something out of scripted fiction or satire. Yes. So why not treat it like that? Yes, and with that in mind, this might even be something I don't. I, I'm I'm reckless in saying this might be something that Panawazik doesn't know about uh, when it's about something like this. But one thing that I had not known until I listened to Dan Taberski's amazing podcast Nine Twelve um, is the fact that the Bush White House after Nine Eleven uh, they realized they were having trouble imagining what bad actors, yeah. what opponents yeah. could do to them. And so they actually called in people from Hollywood, people who worked on the series 24, famous directors and stuff like that. I'm going to play just a, a little bit. You're going to hear Dan Taberski, the host, and he's talking to Jerome Gary, who's a not very well-known like producer, director, screenwriter, who's the only person who's ever been willing, to, as far as I know, to go on the record about this. Here we go. This is 04, Cap. The Pentagon reached out to a team at USC called the Institute for Creative Technologies, and said, hey, can you round up a group of Hollywood types, writers, directors, creatives, to help us figure out what might be coming next? Use your talent at cooking up crazy on-screen scenarios to guess the future. A writer's room, basically, to brainstorm how the next season of post-9-11 America could unfold. Just how bad could it get? Essentially, who are these people? You know, why did they do this? What do they want? What are they going to do next, and what can we do to stop it? They do it in two groups. Jerome is there for both. And so we had who's who. We had absolutely from Oliver Stone, Spike Jones, everybody. The Rocketeer writer Paul DeMeo is there. The Fast and Furious writer David Ayer is there. I mean, Dick Wolf was there. Dick Wolf from the Law and Order franchise. You know, I happen to be driving around at night, James, listening to that podcast. And when he started saying that, I just almost drove off the road. I mean, th this to the point that you, you were just making, yeah. that sometimes it seems like we're living in a movie. Well, then it becomes, well, maybe the people who make movies and television are better at figuring out what's going to come next than, than the policymakers are. Because a lot of political failures are failures of imagination. Right. It's the assumption that things will always go on the way that you've been used to them. And you can't, you know, necessarily imagine what another perspective, uh, you know, what somebody with a different mindset is going to do. Right. Like a normal person 
does not look at a, a box cutter and think, how can I use this to destroy a building in New York City? But a, a terrorist does. And often, you know, a, a, a screenwriter does that sort of thing. You know, it's trying to think if, if I'm, you know, if I'm set in this situation and trying to use this for maximum destruction and, and, and impact, uh, you know, a, a, a screenwriter of a thriller is employing, is, is trying to, to place themselves in that same sort of, same sort of mindset. And yeah, it's, it's uncanny. If I can digress really quickly, fun fact, uh, in early 2001, I, I, as a TV writer, I did a set visit to The Lone Gunman, which is a, a spinoff of The X-Files that mm-hmm. ran for one season and almost everybody forgot. But the first episode of, of that show, which, which ran in early 2001, involved a plot to autopilot a plane into the World Trade Center. And have, everybody forgot about that until after 9-11. So not, not only, you know, can Hollywood writers kind of, you know, that, that imagine these scenarios after the fact, they often do them before the fact. So just to return to the January 6th committee, one thing that we probably will never know but can imagine is that somebody, maybe it was Mr. Goldston, the, afore, the aforementioned ABC, former ABC president, somebody had to sit down with some of these members of Congress who are used to kind of just – you know, using opportunities like this to run their mouths and yeah. and, and posture and play to the, their home base or whatever it is they're trying to do, do almost anything other than actually further the objectives uh, of the meeting. Somebody had to sit down with them and say, actually, you're not even going to get it to talk. Yeah. We're not doing that this time. You know, and you sort of wonder whether – I mean, obviously, there are some things about this that are a little bit different. McCarthy decided – I think unwisely after he was told he couldn't have Jim Jordan and another guy on the committee, not to have anybody on the committee. But, um, you know, you just wonder if going forward, if this is a very successful way to present things, whether this could be more the way that hearings will look in the future. Um, I think it's, you know, at least certainly it's going to be a model for the way that people try to do. I think you're absolutely right that often the uh the priorities of politicians looking to grandstand and making names for themselves don't always dovetail with the the priorities of good communication um but you know it it, it definitely streamlined the, the 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 message and the narrative for them to be stepping away from that 5 minutes per speaker model that is just often death on viewership um, and as you say, you know, it, it, it really helped that they had this sort of, you know, perfect storm situation where, you know, you did not have a Jim Jordan or a Lee Stefanik or somebody whose role, you know, whose role was basically to kick up dust and try to, you know, uh, 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 just I- inject as much, uh, you know, conflict into the con- conversation so that you did not have a single sustained point of view. Um, and, and that, that kind of allowed them to use this as like, you know, basically a, 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 a laboratory. It, it's almost like somebody had said, okay, we have this opportunity. What if, you know, we did something like the 9-11 report, but instead of producing it in the form of an 800 page paperback, that's going to sit on somebody's nightstand, we're going to make, you know, a, a video book of it. What's, what's, what's that going to look like? And yeah, a lot of that probably means telling certain Congress people that they're just going to need to like kind of pipe down and 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 play the role of extras. 
Right. I mean, in a way, as you're speaking, I'm thinking, actually, the 9-11 paperback is actually a pretty good, pretty well-written thing. But uh, yeah, maybe this is the ultimate byproduct of the Trump era. We know he doesn't read. He can only watch things on television. So yeah. they actually made uh, a committee a committee hearing to potentially indict him uh, that, although they can't literally do that, but to, to cast blame on him that he would actually be willing to absorb. James Ponowazic, so great visiting with you, as it always is, the chief television critic for The New York Times and the author of Audience of one, Donald Trump, television, and the fracturing of America. Thanks for taking time to be with us. Thanks, Colin. Love talking to you. All right. We're heading into one final segment here. Uh, it's Frank Rich. Uh, Frank Rich, of course, former columnist for the New York Times, theater critic before that. Now he's a big uh, mogul in the world of prestige television with Veep and Succession. Uh, and Frank and I have been talking about this stuff, this very topic, for many, many years. So looking forward to it. We're back. It's time for me to say thank you to our technical producer, that's Kat Pastor, to the producer of this episode, that's Jonathan McPants. Thanks to um, both of you and to all of you for listening. Now I get to talk to uh, an old friend, uh, Frank Riches, writer at large for New York Magazine, executive producer of HBO's Succession. Before that, of course, it was Veep. Um, Actually, Frank, you may not remember this, but you and I kind of started talking about this around 1994, I think. You were a fairly new columnist uh, at the right. New York Times. You were doing a piece about Ollie North. I had just written about kind of Ollie North as television because I was sort of convinced at that point that everything has to work on television. You know, Watergate happened on television. Iran-Contra happened on television. Uh, Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas happened on television. And and so maybe that's kind of a starting point, right? This is something that both you and I have acknowledged for a very long time. Yes. Well, first of all, it's great to be talking with you again. And second, I really, hats off to your memory. But yeah, this is a continuing uh, thread in American politics and culture. And I guess most people dated back uh, to a television event that predates both of us, which were the Army McCarthy hearings when they were televised. Uh, and then, of course, there's a straight line from that to all the rest that you cite, the Watergate hearings, uh, and now uh, where we are uh, today. Right. We can even go further. Here's a, a bright young New York Times writer writing in 2000. This genre could be named the Mediathon, a relentless hybrid of media circus, soap opera, and tabloid journalism we have come to think of as it caps all calamity all the time. War in the Gulf paved the way for the host of breathless sequels that have blanketed the culture ever since. The O.J. Simpson case, Who Killed John Bonet, The Death of Princess Diana, John Kennedy Jr.'s Plane is Missing, Massacre at Columbine, Columbine, Will Elian Go Back to Cuba, and of course, the biggest crowd pleaser of them all, Scandal at the White House. Frank, that's you. Of course, you'd have to start naming the scandals of the White House a little bit more specifically <laughs> yeah, now. Is, this is back in the, you know, the innocent days of the Monica Lewinsky uh, <laughs> uh, uh, mediathon. Um, yeah, and I guess, you know, what's interesting, it, it, it's become, it's also overwhelming that we've we've learned in the Trump era, I think, it's, it's harder and harder to break through. Trump broke through by being outrageous, whereas uh, the Democrats 
in my view, ultimately, ultimately failed to break through with either the Mueller uh, investigation or the two impeachment hearings, which makes it all the more interesting, I think, that they seem to be breaking through in this go round. Right. I mean, Trump broke through initially on The Apprentice uh, and and he he broke through on television before he broke through in politics. And, and I think people often lose track of that and that, you know, in the early stages of the Trump presidency, there was this sort of so-called chaos narrative. Oh, he just he got his fifth chief of staff and his fourth secretary of state. And he, he and I kept thinking, no, that's what he does. He got famous for saying you're fired. That's not a chaos narrative for Donald Trump. That's his signature move. And people who watch a lot of television, Frank, they already knew him as that TV star. Right. And I would say, you know, it's it's another version of uh, Reagan. I don't want to equate the two of them in any other way. And Reagan's persona could not be more different from Trump's, even if his politics sometimes overlap. But, you know, where's the rest of me? That Reagan, <laughs> that Hollywood uh, Reagan, the Hollywood, the Reagan of the General Electric, you know, Sunday night program that he was the host for was something that uh, a gave him a lot of skill as a performer, a lot of training, um, and also was part of his persona when uh, he became uh, involved in politics and ran for president, and became president. And you know, in retrospect, we know no one really knew who Reagan was. You know, even those around him, even his own family, as we've learned posthumously, he defeated uh, Edmund Morris, one of the premier biographers in America, in an attempt to figure out who the hell this guy was underneath the, the pose. And Trump, I think, is much more transparent. But again, his skills were honed, in his case, by reality television, not by uh, the big Hollywood studios of the 1940s. Right. So in some ways, the January 6th hearings can be looked at as maybe the first coherent attempt by the Democrats to kind of beat Trump at his own game, to be good on television. I mean, they've been aided, and we've talked about this earlier in the show, aided a little bit by, by Kevin McCarthy's ultimate decision to essentially boycott the hearing so you don't have somebody kind of running out the clock, asking a lot of hostile questions, m- bogging the hearings down. They've been able to streamline this thing, but in a way that you really couldn't do, for example, with the two impeachment processes. Um, but you know, I'm kind of amazed by how good, how good a job they've done this time. I'm amazed, shocked might even be a stronger word, because even though you're right, that they're helped by the fact that Kevin McCarthy made a decision that even Trump has taken to deriding of uh, not playing ball with, with the hearing process. Um, I'm really, one of the paradoxes for me of all this history we're discussing is how the Democrats, who are the party that are friendly with people in the culture that's sort of enraptured by and entwined with show business, official show business, Hollywood show business, network television show business, have been so incompetent about staging anything, whereas Republicans and not just Reagan and not just Trump have been so much better at it, even though they're hostile to show business, hostile to pop culture and all the rest. What impresses me here is they actually had some discipline on themselves. I mean, these hearings could have been what they often are with both parties and certainly with Democrats, a lot of lengthy, bloviating speeches where uh, the the members of Congress on the committee are doing opening statements that repeat each other, that, that leave almost no time 
for the substance of the hearing are boring and turn people off and literally you don't want to watch it on TV. Here, they've limited the speaking roles uh, for themselves severely, really one Democrat plus Liz Cheney, more or less, per session. Uh, and then they've done this incredible uh, job, as everyone has noted, of using you know, television editing at its best, having now had a career in television and been uh, in editing rooms, I know how hard it is to take a ton of material and get the story clear and keep people watching. It's very, it's, it takes a lot of work. It's, and it has nothing to do with politics. It has everything to do with filmmaking, really, and aesthetics. Uh, and so uh, the, they're able to do it. And we all know there's a former ABC News president who's been advising them, but that can't, no one person could be responsible for this much uh, focus and works. Somehow this, this committee, whoever's on that staff, and I assume some of the people on the committee themselves have really kept their eye on the ball, excuse the cliche. And, and, are t and I hate to say this too, they're telling a narrative, which has now become a ridiculous cliche of all the stuff, but they actually have a story to tell that they're telling well, they're creating suspense, and they're you know they're doing teasers like uh, Succession would do. You know, next on uh, next, actually we don't do it, but you know, a television show would do you know, next on uh, on the series. This is happening. They they um uh they are completely coherent. They follow up. They re repeat information mm -hmm. that they've already said when it's useful in advancing the story. In fact. Think of a non-show uh, business example. If you read uh, Robert Caro's uh, magisterial uh, Lyndon Johnson biography, which is in several volumes, he'll often, like in the third volume, recapitulate stuff he's told you in previous volumes, or even sometimes I think earlier in that volume, so you don't lose the thread. Very economically, it's a very difficult thing to pull off in writing. And that's what they're pulling off here. They always make sure you're there's a context and you're oriented and they're pushing the story further and creating suspense. And um, whether what I can't answer is the question everyone has, will it make any difference in terms of Trump being prosecuted or whatever, or politics? That I have no idea. I wouldn't predict, but I, certainly they couldn't be doing a better job. Right. And I love your point about repetition. It's almost as if they've learned not only from television, but from Top 40 Radio, where you play the latest Beyonce song until people can't stand it anymore. But, you know, what they, they have kind of hit singles. Like, they've got that Jared Kushner clip where he says, well, I was mostly working on pardons, uh, you know, at that time. But, yes. uh, but then, uh, you know, I knew a little bit about the White House Council, but I thought they were just whining. You know, they've played that two or three times. And you're right. The sort of the default wisdom of a congressional committee is you enter something into the record. And once you've done that, you're done with that thing. But they've sort of realized exactly what you just said. No, just show it a bunch of times and people till people can almost kind of Rocky Horror Picture Show right along with it. Absolutely. And and they've and they've cast it very well. I mean, and, and of course, as, as again, as everyone has said, it's brilliant that almost all the players are Republicans. And generally speaking, Trump appointees, Trump uh, former Trump sympathizers, Trump lackeys, it's, it's you know, whether it be uh, William Barr uh, or Cassie Hutchinson, you know, the, it it couldn't, you know, like looking at Hutchinson, if I may say so, you couldn't have 
a more prototypical young white MAGA person. I'm sorry that and that really that's like central casting. It really is. And um, uh, and look, and it turned out that she was also incredibly effective because she seemed to be uh, completely ingenuous and telling the truth. We don't we don't know for a fact she is, but she did do it under oath. And those who have uh, from, uh, you know, the peanut gallery tried to poke holes in her testimony and talk about their, their testify under oath. They have not testified under oath. They've threatened to testify under oath. And perhaps they're reconsidering it because perhaps they're lying or mis misremembering what this young woman seems to have remembered uh, so uh, assiduously. Right. I think there's another thing here. And I, mm -hmm. I apologize in advance for almost seeming kind of a little cynical about all this stuff. But right. I think to have a successful mediathon, to use your term, right. there's sort of a cherche la femme thing that has to happen. You know, it's hard to do it without that. I mean, I think back to the 80s, and I think it was sort of the time of, of Donna, Donna Rice with Gary Hart and Jessica mm -hmm. Hahn with Jim Baker. And, you know, Fawn Hall with Ollie North, even though there was kind of nothing, there was no real there there. You kind right. of had to have her anyway. Poor Fawn Hall. Did you know she wound up marrying the former manager of the Doors who got her addicted to crack cocaine. This is how these things... Are you serious? I'm completely serious Where did about you that. learn this? Is this like on the internet? I think say? it's on the internet. Well, actually, I, I actually found a newspaper article that seemed pretty credible where she talked about it. But, you know, you need that. You need a little bit of that. You know, it's it's like... What a country. Yeah, go on. It's like what whoever said about Rogers and Astaire. You know, he gave her class. She gave him sex. Right. And, and, and I think there's a little bit of that going on with Cassidy Hutchinson. This These hearings as a TV show... Not as hearings, but as a TV show. They kind of needed, you know, this young woman who looks like a young Rose Byrne or something to get up there and sort of be that thing. That That's a sort of necessary element of the story. Am I making any sense at all about that? A absolutely. And you and absolutely. And the fact is, if you're mainly if you're mainly uh, uh, calling if the show mainly stars Trump people or disaffected Trump people, by definition, they're going to be mostly middle-aged white guys, right? Mm -hmm. So to bring in a young woman uh, as as a spark, there's no question to it, and uh, no question about it. Also, it's it's kind of uh, this. Uh, this just occurs to me, and maybe it's a it's a wrong, it's a red herring, but it's interesting. Her testimony happened. Um, around the first, you know, the, the beginning of the tumult about Roe v. Wade. And um, my guess is, without knowing it, that she's, you know, pro-life and, and Aunt Hutchinson is an anti-abortion. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant to her testimony. But I do think uh, Republicans are suddenly realizing they, very belatedly, they really have a problem with women as well as a lot of men, include, you know, including me and I suspect you on this issue. And so by a coincidence of timing, and it's completely a coincidence, uh, they don't want to, I don't think they want to declare war on a, on a, uh, a woman who testified, a young woman who testified all day who worked for Trump in the White House and vilify her. I right. Think it's a risky strategy. 
It is. No matter who does it. I mean, you know, the Clinton administration tried to discredit some of his critics by, you know, I mean, Carville famously said Paula Jones is what you get when you drag $100 through a trailer park. Um, You know, I mean, that's always, first of all, a distasteful and unattractive strategy. And there there are huge risks that go along with it. And I also agree with you that, you know, that whole thing about whether it's better better to be good or be lucky. Well, it's really better to be both. And they kind of have been lucky. They, I mean, she, Cassidy Hutchinson is great TV. And you know that old joke about sort of who's Keanu Reeves, get me Keanu Reeves, get me a young Keanu I, Reeves, who's Keanu Reeves? You know, I mean, it's like the guy from ABC said, you know what this thing needs? It needs like a black Sam Irvin. Does anybody have like a black Sam Irvin? And Betty Thompson yeah. is sitting right there. <laughs> a figure, by the way, who was unfamiliar to me. I mean, maybe it's my ignorance, but it was interesting. Um, he was a fresh, he's obviously not a fresh face, and he's been in Congress uh, for a long time and is of a certain age, but he comes as Irvin was also not a fresh face, but came across as one, a fresh person, a new personality um, uh, uh, in the Watergate hearings. Um, it works for it. As and there's some, you know, there are a couple of really, really accomplished uh, people on this uh, committee, including uh, Raskin and, and and Schiff, but we know them, and th- not that they're not playing a role, but it's it's very interesting how they've uh, adjusted the casting, and and freshened the whole thing up. Yes. No. You and and you know Thompson has that kind of slightly avuncular quality. So yeah. at the end of it, he can kind of calm everybody down and kind of put a little benediction on the day. So before we before you go, I want to first of all give credit where credit is due. Who first figured out that a congressional hearing could be interesting, gripping, funny? Uh, let's hear. Uh, this is C one cat. Let's hear a little scene from uh, Veep season four, episode nine. I should say Frank was executive producer uh, of Veep. Uh, the episode called. Called testimony. Do you recall a document shared on the J Drive titled The Jonad Files? Uh, no, no, ma'am. No, that doesn't ring a bell. So it's not a word combining Jonah and Gonad? Not to I my can knowledge. confirm that that is exactly what it is, and Mr. Egan knows that. In fact, Mr. Egan, I was told that you encourage staffers to add to this glossary of abuse. I do not, uh, at this moment in time, recall the action, uh, nor the uh, document. Okay, maybe this action. will jog your memory. We have some extracts. J-Rock, Jizzy Gillespie, Jack and the Giant Jackoff, Galeon, Tinkerballs, Wadzilla, One Erection. Do we have to go through all of these? Uh, my college friends called me uh, Tall McCartney. I preferred that. That's a good nickname. I mean, it, it kind of, first of all, laughing during the clip, Frank, but um, it kind of points out there's this sort of kabuki familiarity to how these hearings go with the kind of halting answers and, you know, the, the attempt to evade and stuff. And, and it's interesting the degree to which this, for some of the reasons you've cited, has been able to kind of fracture some of that formalism and replace it with something else. Yeah, I agree. And, I, and listening to that old scene from V, we, of course, we did something in the second season of Succession, too, where we put the not terribly sophisticated cousin Greg on the stand uh, <laughs> in Washington, and and it was a little Jonah-like. Yes, this they've they've gotten through that. They've tightened, um, they've tightened the uh, 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 the the pacing. They've they've cut out the flab both from the congressman and from the witnesses. Uh, it seems it's just it's scripted. I mean, 
in a good way. Right. I'd forgotten about the Greg thing, and that was hilarious because it's almost as though he'd read a book about Watergate and then wound up saying these kinds of stilted, not persist, not exactly idiomatic phrases that he thought were the kind of things that you say. <laughs> exactly. These crazy locutions uh, that were really hilarious and, and uh, with uh, Eric Bogosian playing his, uh, his questioner, his straight man, uh, really funny. I thought I can say I have to say I'm prejudiced because the producer of the show. But, yeah. So let me ask you one last thing, which mm-hmm. is one thing that I've been wondering today is whether there's a little bit of a risk when you when you're telling a good TV story that it could interfere with the legal story. And, and the example I'm thinking of is that the lunge for the steering wheels part uh, of the Hutchinson mm-hmm. testimony uh, it really works in a 24 or even a Veep way, but it's not really important to the case being made. Not as important, for example, as the turn off the metal detectors, turn off the mags testimony. But there's a way in which because it's good television, it kind of leads to good post-television discussion on social media, you know, and then other discussions about whether it's true and is Tony Ornato going to deny it? And, you know, I mean, in a way, doing really good television, there's a risk that you get in the way of the actual legal story you're trying to tell. Sure. And if this turns out to be a mistake, although my guess is she was told it, Mm -hmm. and what we hear about uh, Ornato He's now trying to cover his tracks. She was told it by him because he has a history of doing so. Let's see if he contradicts her under oath. But let's say for the sake of argument, he does. And it's in dispute or or an error. Um, they'll learn from it. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, and it and and her testimony is so overwhelming. Uh, that, you know, I just I just I just I, I you know, in most it's it's a speed bump and not, and not a big one. Cause the really, you know, quite honestly, you're right. If, it, if you want it to be absolutely pure and pristine and completely correct. So the, the big stuff can't be challenged, but no one is challenging the big stuff, including the fact that he was happy to let supporters with weapons come to a riot. <laughs> well, I'm sure by season two, there will have, they'll have ironed out any kinks that they have now. Exactly. They've been pretty, pretty damn good. I have to say. All right. Great to talk to you, Frank. Great to talk to you. Take care. Have a good summer if we don't speak before it ends. All right. All right. Take care. Frank Rich, writer at large for New York Magazine, executive producer of HBO Succession. Thanks for listening to today's show, and we'll be back with another one tomorrow. Okay. Got the idea? All right. Now let's concentrate.